Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we're glad you're here, and we pray that you'll find hope and strength in God's Word. And today we're starting a short series in the lead up to Easter called Hard Questions for the Christian Faith. We believe that the church is a place where you can bring doubts and concerns and get honest answers from the Bible. Today we're dealing with a huge question. Why does God care who I sleep with? I think it's a question that genuinely puzzles many people. They say, God has no place in the bedroom. And they wonder why a God of love would put restrictions on love. I think those are valid concerns. And I couldn't help reflect on them as I watched Oprah's Sunday night interview with Meghan and Harry. The royal couple described how they felt trapped by the institution of the monarchy. As a newcomer, the restrictions were overwhelming to Meghan. But as Harry spoke about them, he shared that it was harder to see because it was all he'd ever known. It was only after he left that he could realize the freedom that he'd missed. On top of the pressures and the restrictions, the most heartbreaking revelations were the allegations of racism and discrimination. Almost as soon as the interview was over, people began to talk about whether the crown is an outdated institution that should be abandoned. And as I've listened to the commentary back and forth, I can't help but think that this is how many people perceive the church in its views on sexuality. There are charges of discrimination. The Bible is often viewed as outdated and prudish. And if the church's position on sex continues to be so restrictive, many think it's time for the institution to be abandoned altogether. Have you ever felt like that? If you're listening to this sermon, you might not be at that point yet. But maybe you've just silently ignored the Bible's teachings on sex. Maybe you're more of a take the good with the bad type of person. But what does that say about your view of God? Or about your faith, for that matter? Many of you are probably committed to the Bible's teachings on sexuality, but you have doubts. Are there answers to the questions that people ask? Are you stuck in an outdated, restrictive religion? Have you been in it for so long, you just can't see it anymore? Those are the questions I'm going to try to address in today's message. The title, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With, comes from a book of that name by Sam Albury, which I'd highly recommend. But the answers that we'll look to today come straight from the scriptures. I want to give you three reasons and three passages from the Bible. The first answer is this, God cares who you sleep with because he cares about the victims. Sex isn't like candy that God doesn't want us to enjoy. It's more like fire. When treated carefully, it can warm you and heat your house. But if you're careless, the fire can burn the house down. God cares too much to silently watch that happen. God cares who you sleep with because he cares about the victims. Now, if you have a Bible handy, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. And if you don't have a Bible, please pause the video so you can grab one and follow along. This is too important for you to take my word for it. I want, to hear, want you to hear it from the scriptures themselves. I'll start reading it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and down to verse 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, this passage forces us to start with the recognition that guarding sexuality is a priority for God. In verse 3, it says that God wants us to abstain from sexual immorality. That word sexual immorality was an all-encompassing term. It's used to describe any sexuality outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And it says it's his will. So if you ignore what he says about sexuality, you are ignoring his will for your life. Verse 4 shows that the way that we approach sexuality should be marked by self-control. We're to guard our bodies in holiness and honor. So it's clear that God does care about who we sleep with. But maybe you're thinking, that's just how people were back then. They must have been really uptight about sexuality. But that wasn't the case. The Roman Empire in the first century was more like Las Vegas than Victorian England. Anything went sexually. In fact, verse 5 describes the culture's view of sexuality at the time. They decided what to do with their bodies based on what he calls the passion of lust. They did what felt right. They followed their hearts. (laughs) And maybe you think that's how it should be. Maybe you're ready to check out on God because he's restrictive and you're all about sexual freedom. But I don't think that's a fair comparison, though. The reality is that almost everyone believes in restricting sexuality at some level. I I don't know anyone who thinks that rape is a good thing, for example. Most people think sex with minors is off limits. This week, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is in trouble for comments and behavior that he's been accused of by those who have worked with him. And so most people agree it's wrong for a person in a position of power to approach staff sexually. And yet in each of these situations, it's obvious the perpetrators are doing what feels right to them. They're just acting on their sexual desires. But when people say, hey, that's not okay, nobody says, hey, you're just being uptight about sex. We don't call that restrictive. We just call it wrong. So if everyone believes that sex should be restricted at some level, the only question is where the lines should be drawn and why. And it doesn't help to label one group the freedom camp and the other group prudish and restrictive. Because that's not what's going on. Now, verse 6 gives us one reason why God wants to guard the sanctity of sex. It says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God cares about who we sleep with because he cares about protecting sexual victims. He knows the damage that can be done when people just follow their desires. And so he puts up fences for our protection. 
Ironically, since the 60s and 70s, we've done our best as a society to try to tear down almost every one of those fences. And now we're reckoning with the Me Too movement and the reality of sexual abuse. One statistic I read said that between 20 and 30% of American women have been sexually assaulted. God guards the boundaries of sexuality to protect them, to protect them and others who are harmed in different ways when people just act out on their desires without any regard for God or his design for sex. And it says that he's an avenger in all these things. God has been fighting to protect, protect victims of sexual abuse before it even occurred to us. And he will judge sexual sin. Harvey Weinstein, he got a 23-year prison sentence, but one day he'll face God. And so will the many who have gotten away with abuse in this world. God cares who you sleep with because he cares about the victims. Now, maybe you accept God as an ally in the fight against sexual abuse, but you still think the Bible's restrictions are outdated. Times have changed. The church needs to keep up. We're not living in the ancient world anymore. And I get that. But look what it says in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. The protections on human sexuality come from God. If we were talking about some outdated church traditions, and maybe we should tear them down. But if God himself has put the fences up, we tear them down at our own peril. Now, maybe you're still thinking, even if I accept that these restrictions are from God, he could have just been speaking to people in the first century. Maybe he, today he'd have loosened up, pat us on the back for our modern sexual standards. That sounds like an attractive solution. The problem with it is the nature of the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of almost 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. What people will often do is they'll pick out some obscure practice in one part of the Bible and accuse Christians of hypocrisy if they don't make practice that, that, that same thing anymore while still claiming the authority of the Bible in another area. But that's the beauty of having such a culturally and generally, generationally diverse Bible. If something just comes up once, it may have just been intended to help deal with a particular place and time. But if, as with human sexuality, there are repeated emphasis from beginning to end in different settings and times, it's God's way of saying he's laying down an unchanging standard. And if we choose to disregard it, we're disregarding God himself. So why, doesn't, why does God care who you sleep with? Because he cares about the victims. But God also cares who you sleep with because sexual damage goes deeper than the body. We tend to talk about sex as a purely physical thing. If no one was hurt physically, then no one was hurt. But we all know that's not true. Sex is never just physical. And so God cares who you sleep with because sexual damage goes deeper than the body. Now to get our heads around this next concept, I want to look with you at a case study. One of the problems that the early church had to deal with was prostitution. It was an integral part of the Roman culture. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, gives a picture of how they addressed it. Follow along with me. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, prostitution is an interesting example because today most people have a sense it's not a great thing. But they often don't have a clear moral ground for objecting to it either. That's because we've ex exchanged God's standards for sex with a simple concept called consent. As long as people give their consent, there shouldn't be any more restrictions. And I agree with the concept of consent. But I think we need to ask, who is consent? In the case of prostitution, maybe we should, maybe we should talk about asking for the cons consent of the prostitute's mother. Even if people feel forced to mistreat their bodies, the people who love them surely wish they didn't have to. But consent is limited in other situations too. Nobody talks about asking the consent of the baby who might be aborted through the sexual freedom of a couple, or the child who might grow up without a father. God loves us and treats our bodies as more precious than we do. And so if we're going to use consent as our standard, we should ask for his consent. In the case of prostitution, as with other examples of sexual immorality, he doesn't offer it. And look at the reason he gives. In verse 16, he says, He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Now, while we're still trying to figure out what that means, he quotes the Old Testament book of Genesis, where it first spoke of marriage and sexuality and said, The two will become one flesh. Now, that's strange to quote this here in a discussion of prostitution because uh, people will often have that verse from Genesis read at their wedding. Why is Paul quoting a verse about marriage and applying it to a man's visit to see a prostitute? It's to explain how God designed sex. Most conversations about what should or shouldn't be permitted sexually today take place without any mention of what the purpose of sex is. G.K. Chesterton wisely once said, don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. In this passage, Paul is pointing back to God's original words about sexual intimacy. And he does that to remind them of what its purpose is. God designed sex as a glue for marriage to hold a man and a woman together in a secure, lifelong bond so that children could be born in a stable home marked by love. They'd have that sense of, of love and mutual commitment. So what happens if you ignore that design? Well, according to verse 16, in the case of prostitution, you are emotionally and spiritually gluing yourself to someone you have no intention of committing to. And two things will happen as a result. First, both people are going to be scarred emotionally. Every uncommitted encounter tears something away inside both people. But something else happens as well. 
little by little, the glue runs out. What was given as a gift from God to bond a couple together in marriage loses its stickiness. And relationships become colder and harder to maintain as a result. And while it's seldom convenient to talk about this, I think we all instinctively recognize it. Now, I didn't see the movie Vanilla Sky, but in it there's a line where Cameron Diaz's character confronts Tom Cruise's character. In his mind, it was a friends with benefits relationship. He thought they were both okay with a casual hookup. But in reality, there is no such thing. And at one point, she says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? It's a recognition. There's nothing casual about sex. It's precious. And so when we ignore God's design for it, it damages us. That's why in verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What he's saying is that it affects all of who we are. It's never just physical. And that's why sexual abuse is more damaging than any other form of abuse. So why does God care who we sleep with? So far we've said that he cares who we sleep with because he cares about the victims. And he cares about who we sleep with because sexual damage goes deeper than the body. The final reason that God cares who we sleep with is that sex is meant to tell a story. God actually built a message into one of life's most pleasurable activities, but we can only hear that message in the context of his design. God cares who you sleep with because sex is meant to tell a story. Now at the end of the most famous New Testament passage on marriage, the Apostle Paul makes a puzzling statement. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's going on here? He's saying that marriage is designed by God to illustrate the even greater love relationship of Jesus for his people. But what does that mean? Think of what we know about human sexuality. We're given longings for relationship and desires to love and be loved. We want companionship. We want security. We want in intimacy. We want to know someone deeply and be known by them. When we're born, we first learn love from our mother and father. In the ideal home, we learn what it's like to be valued and cared for. We learn what it's like for someone to help and guide us. We receive comfort, assurance, and encouragement. But as we approach adulthood ourselves, we long for something more. We yearn for an even deeper love, a true union. Some people spend their entire lives searching. But when they find someone they truly love and are loved by, Verse 31 says three things should happen. First, they leave their father and mother. They may still live in the same town, but there's a shift in ultimate loyalty. 
man and woman, recognize each other as a new number one in their lives. Next, it says that the man hold fat, holds fast to his wife, and by implication, the wife to her husband. Now, it's not saying that they just give each other a great big hug. The point is that they commit themselves to one another. They enter into a relationship where they vow to be faithful and love one another, come what may. And then, only then, in God's design, the two are to become one flesh. This is God's plan for marriage. And it's designed to tell a story. He wrote a message into one of life's most universal hopes. And the message is that those longings that we have for love and relationship, they are given to teach us about God's love for us. The hunger we feel for companionship, security, and intimacy can only ultimately be fulfilled in Him. We look for those things in a marriage partner, and we get hints of it in a truly great one, but it's meant to point us to the greater love that we can only experience in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He laid down his very life for us when we didn't deserve it to show us what love is really like. He's the one who completes us. He's the one who rescues us. He's the one who fills us. And like marriage, we enter into that relationship in three steps. First, we give our highest loyalty when we devote ourselves exclusively to him. And then we become one with him. It's not a coincidence that God has designed that one of the most pleasurable experiences in life will be enjoyed in marriage between two people committed to one another in lifelong love. Because that pleasure is intended to point us to the wonder and the joy of a relationship with Jesus. With him, you are fully known and still fully loved. With him, there's faithfulness and security. With him, there's no death. No death do you part. There are no goodbyes. I want you to see how profoundly inclusive this story is. When I was preparing for, for today's message, I obviously I spend time in, in studying the Bible. But I also prepared for this message by reading two books and listening to two workshops. One of the books was written by a Christian man who was attracted to men. The other by a Christian woman who was attracted to women. The workshops were from an African-American woman who used to identify as lesbian and an Asian-American Asian man who used to identify as gay. Of the four, two went on to find fulfillment in heterosexual marriage and two have found fulfillment in singleness and celibacy. But fascinatingly, despite the difference in their backgrounds, their message was the same. In Christ, they found something greater. Listen to the words of one of them, Rebecca McLaughlin. She writes this, as a predominantly same-sex attracted woman, happily married now to a man, I myself am increasingly convinced that the longing I at times have felt is ultimately a longing not for another woman, but for the one who created that person. If you haven't come to the one to which all of our longings for love ultimately point, then I want to urge you and invite you to do that today. He laid down his life for you and calls you to himself, whatever your background might be. 
Give him your loyalty and commitment and enjoy the relationship that only he can make possible. If you have done that, hear what he says in his word about your sexuality. It is the will of God that you be sanctified, that you avoid sexual immorality. It's not just about not doing it, don't go near it, steer clear of it. God has drawn the lines by which we can enjoy sex in the way that it was intended to be enjoyed. Don't make up your own rules. Ask his consent before you give your body or take from another's. Don't mess with his design. If you have done that, hear what he says in his word about your sexuality. It's the will of God that you be sanctified, that you avoid sexual immorality. It doesn't say to just get as close to the line as you possibly can, but avoid any hint of it. Because God has drawn the lines by which we can enjoy sex in the way that it was intended. So don't make up your own rules. If you're going to ask consent, ask his consent before you give your body or take from another's. Don't mess with the glue that was designed to hold a man and a woman together in a lifelong union. Instead, lean into Jesus as your first love and find strength and hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we talk about these things, we realize that there is so much confusion. There is so much controversy. So many ideas and opinions swirl around us day by day. And so we pray, Father, that you would use your word to bring clarity. Your word is truth. And we pray that you would sanctify us, change us by your truth. I pray for those with uh, confusion, confusion about what you say and confusion about what to do with it. Give them the courage to take you at your word. Lead them into your truth and lead them into the freedom that only you can offer. I pray, Father, for anyone hearing this today, realizing that what they most are longing for is not just another relationship, but they're longing for the love that only you can fill them with. Longing for the relationship that is eternal. Longing for someone who would know them and still love them. Draw that person forward, Father. Give them the grace to respond to you in faith, to give their loyalty and commitment to you, and to enjoy in a relationship with you the fullness of all this, that this world's satisfaction points to. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you understand why God cares who you sleep with. But maybe it's raised some more questions as well. And if that's the case, then leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, then share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.